welcome again to another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Uh, today I'm joined by a, a number of my uh, fantastic colleagues uh, who I'm going to allow them to introduce themselves uh, briefly and tell us kind of where they're from. Um, Barb, you want to start? Yep. Hi, my name is Barbara Eaton. I'm a nurse practitioner with the Acute Care Surgery Service um, here at the University of Maryland Medical Center. Uh, I work with uh, four other PAs and NPs to support the surgery service, and I got my start in Boston at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And Katie, Katie Lillard. Hi, I'm Katie Lillard. I uh, am a nurse practitioner with the shock trauma uh, teams specifically Team A, which is now Team Alpha. Um, I This was my first nurse practitioner job um, here. I got my education at University of South Carolina, and I have my master's, um, and I grew up in the Maryland area. And finally, least not, uh, last but never least, Jen Miller. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm Jen Miller. I also work within the shock trauma center within the surgical teams. Um, I guess you can say I'm a bit of a trauma lifer in the fact that I started bedside uh, nursing there and became an NP and am still there. And I absolutely love it. So excited to do this podcast. Well, ladies, I brought you together today because, you know, nurse practitioners and um, physician assistants really have continued to emerge as critical partners in trauma and acute care surgery care. And, and your presence is almost ubiquitous to modern trauma and acute care surgery services at most business centers. And quite frankly, couldn't function without them at most places, including here at Artem's Cali Shock Trauma at the University of Maryland. Yet I'm always surprised about how poor of a job we do in preparing residents, fellows, and even attendings to collaborate optimally with, with you folks as partners in care and understand better both the value of your backgrounds and your capabilities. And so I've asked some of you today, obviously you ladies have kept me in line for many years and you're very, all very experienced, but I'd like you to help us un better understand the NP and I know we don't have any PAs on the line today, but you guys understand those career pathways a bit and what we as surgeons and physicians and trainees should know about your professional capabilities. And I think it might be useful to start with really the educational and training pathways that must be navigated to get to a career as an uh, NP or a PA. And to get at this, I'd like to take a step back and, and a bit and start with the nurse who wants to pursue additional graduate training and expanded expertise in the clinical realm. What are the pathways that they can select? And I'm going to fill this one to Barb first because she gives a very nice presentation to our chief residents each year to help them understand the different tracks. So what are the different tracks that can be um, pursued as a, as a nurse who wants to achieve something different, Barb? Um, so a nurse practitioner, if they want to um, uh, sort of increase their level of expertise and, and perhaps become a licensed independent provider, i.e. Um, able to um, write prescriptions and admit and discharge patients and, and kind of do a, a huge variety of things, there's a couple of things they can do. The first is they can become a PA. Um, which will, I think we'll probably elaborate a little bit on more in a few minutes. Um, they can become a nurse practitioner, um, which is a, ma a master's level program, um, or at this time, it's a, it could be a doctorate level program. Um, and that averages about an additional seven to 900 clinical hours. 
And with that master's degree or doctorate degree, they can then specialize as they do their coursework. They actually specialize in family nurse practitioner, um, nurse midwife, um, acute care NP, gerontologic NP, or they can even become a CRNA, which is a um, certified registered nurse anesthetist. So there's a lot of um, pathways that a registered nurse can take to um, uh, to obtain an advanced degree. And, um, typically it just depends on kind of where they feel most comfortable and, and preference and, and what they want to do with when they grow up. <laughs> okay, great. I got, got that. So Katie, let me, I'm going to fill this one to you. So Barb mentioned there are some doctorate level programs and others are master's level or not. Why do some folks choose the doctorate pathway? What are the benefits of, um, doing the master's pathway and are there trends in either direction that that are going on right now in the NP community? I um I am master's prepared and I did that because I wanted to really do it, I guess to for lack of better terms, do it as quickly and get it done with as least amount of debt as possible. Um, I also started my advanced level training in the South, which uh, does not have a very big emphasis on the doctorate programs. Most of the programs in the Southern universities are master's prepared. So that's why I went in that direction. Um, I was a nurse for about five years before I started. There's more of a trend that a lot of people seem to be doing nursing for about two years and then starting to get into the program sooner. So I wanted to be completed with my training within that two years. And I felt that the research component that comes along with the doctorate programs is not something that I had a big, uh, I guess, drive to do for lack of better term. But Jen, uh, Jen Miller is a doctorate uh, prepared nurse practitioner. So she could probably speak more to what that was like going through the University of Maryland. Yeah, Jen, why, why did you choose doctorate? What, was, what are the theoretical and actual potential differences between the two? Yeah, I mean, the doctorate program is essentially meant to teach a little bit more component of research as well as a leadership component. Um, I think ultimately my decision was made because I wanted to go back to the University of Maryland. I went there as an undergrad and had a really great experience. Um, And, you know, I, I... enjoyed the professors. I, I really liked the clinical opportunities that I was given there. So that was an easy choice for me as, you know, as far as schools were concerned. And unfortunately, they didn't offer master's at the time. I was actually the last class, well, the first class of DMP to, to be admitted. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, being a doctorally trained advanced practice nurse is going to be the future. I know the AACN, which is one of our governing associations, has made a push in recent years uh, for more DNP trained nurses. Um, and if you look at healthcare in general, I think there is a push toward doctorate degrees, pharmacists, physical therapists, audiologists. I mean, they all have, you know, doctorates behind their, their names now. And um, I think the ultimate goal is obviously to ad- advance the profession, the profession in general and you know, in, at bedside and research and in leadership roles. So I think ultimately that's going to be the gold standard. Um, I think the goal was maybe 2023. I think that's a little uh, unrealistic at this time for all programs to be to be doctorates. But um, I think that's definitely going to be where it's going. Well, and Barb, Katie mentioned a little bit about being from the South. Well, are there some regional differences in, in terms of where these things are going? I know that Maryland's different than even some of the states around us. What are the differences state to state in general terms? As with respect to the 
the doctorate level. Yeah, the doctoral level requirements kind of thing. Um, it definitely was a much heavier um, push in the the kind of more populated uh, areas that have, you know, just more medicine in general. So you saw an awful lot of initial programs pop up in Boston, New York, um, Chicago, um, you know, LA and, and the kind of places that just in general have, um, a, a lot of medical education in, anyway in the geography. Um, but the, the trend as Jen said, the trend is towards trying to have a universal doctorate program. Um, and I think my opinion is that part of it is that um, there's a, legit, a legitimacy question um, that uh, nurse practitioners have had to struggle with for some time in that uh, there's some providers are some clinicians who kind of still think of us as what we call like the word mid-level which is um, not appropriate anymore and and or like a glorified nurse. So I think part of the rationale behind um, this higher this higher level degree is to um, not only improve our preparation for leadership and research, but also to further legitimize the role in the eyes of hospital administration um, it, from a fiscal perspective and all of that. So even though initially it was in these kind of bigger cities, it's trickling down and it's becoming a standard. Um, most programs only offer doctorate level programs now. So it's not going to be there's going to get become a time where it, I, I think it almost won't be a choice. Gotcha. Well, at present, as you're configured now, what is, what's the time commitment? Um, and I, and I can say, and, uh, although I support and understand why there's a doctorate program there, when I was going to school, I was working full time and doing my master's degree full time. So I never would have been able to become a nurse practitioner if the expectation was a doctorate level program, because there's no way I could have kept that up for like almost three years. That was the same for me as well. I Yeah. So it's kind of almost, uh, it's almost a step backwards in a way. <laughs> I yeah. can't imagine going, trying to go to med school and have a side job. I mean, I couldn't have mopped floors at the local barn and managed to keep score up. So I don't know how you ladies do it, but um, you always seem to pull it off and come out the other and looking fantastic. And we're glad to have you. Um, let's, let me ask a little question. We don't have any PAs on the line, but, and I don't know who wants to field this one. Maybe we'll throw this to Jen. Um, PAs, what's the difference in the training pathway, at least for PAs from nurse practitioners? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest difference in training pathways is that, um, you know, the NPs, when they go into school, you have to choose a specialty. You know, you're either choosing adult Jero, you're choosing nurse midwife, you're choosing family nurse practitioner, um, and all your training is geared towards that one specialty. Whereas I think PA training and education is more generalized. Um, I don't know if anyone else wants to speak to that, but I, I think that's the, the biggest difference. Um, and then obviously the, the nursing model versus more a medical model, um, you know, NPs come out with a, a wealth of knowledge with inpatient care and um, have those bedside clinical hours, whereas PA clinical hours are, um, you know, surgery time and, and things like that. Any, uh, Barb, you got anything to add to that or? Uh, well, I think the only thing I would add, and, and this is just from my experience as, um, as a, you know, orienting new employees is that, um, 
nurses do come with that background of already having a bedside experience or SRNPs already have bedside experience. Whereas a PA, unless they were a nurse or maybe an EMT before, they might not, they just might not be as facile with all of the stuff that occurs at the bedside. Um, Sometimes just simple stuff like hooking up an EKG machine. Um, So as a person who might be considering um, hiring, uh, an NP versus a PA, depending on kind of what track they're going to, they're going to go in, in your job, in your specialty or your job that might, you know, factor in on how much time they need to orient, what kind of training they're going to need. So, you know, the, the nurse practitioner typically just has a little bit more background and uh, can jump in a little more quickly. So in terms of clinical actual activity, are there really tangible differences in the clinical workspace between what PAs do and can do and what NPs do and can't do, or at least traditional kind of routes that they take care of? In the acute care setting, I would say yes. Um, and, And I would say that the PA is actually at an advantage in the acute care setting in some ways because they have something like 2,000 clinical hours. Um, and they do train under the medical model, and that's that's kind of how we are taking care of patients. Um, and the NP has to um, has to kind of jump in and, and balance that biopsychosocial model versus the medical model, and, and kind of be the the um, the the balance in between that. Um, and sometimes that's challenging, but for a PA. They can, uh, in the acute care setting, they can jump into the OR. They almost always know how to put in lines. They know how to put in chest tubes. Um, they know how to throw a stitch. All of the things that I would have had to have gone to, um, uh, you know, extra training for. So there is a little advantage there. Um, the nurse practitioner, however, I think has a lot more advantage in just like general basic patient management, picking up on things that a lot of people won't see, um, you know, uh, social needs of patients and and all of that. So I, I feel like in general, it's a more well-rounded perspective. Um, but the PA definitely has a little more hands-on experience when they first start. Gotcha. And Jen, let me throw you a question. Oh, okay. Jen, let me throw you a question here. Uh, you know, there are different tracks that Barb described in terms of family practice, um, acute care. Other, if I train as a nurse practitioner in family practice medicine, does that mean that I can never work in the hospital in the acute care setting? Is there no opportunity for crossover or there are opportunities for kind of cross training once you've gotten that master's or PhD level to move into a different workspace? Yeah, I mean, we have um, several family nurse practitioners working within the acute care setting. Um, I think in some aspects, they're, they're, well, obviously their training is different and they have the continuum, continuum of care being able to have children as well as adults, whereas I'm an adult trained uh, acute care nurse practitioner. So my cutoff is age 15. Um, but we, we absolutely have people within the hospital working in an acute care setting under a family, um, license or degree, I should say. Um, but if you go into like the ER and, and things like that, a lot of those emergency room NPs are our family because they're able to take care of the continuum of age. Um, but we do, we do have some crossover. Okay. Well, let's get a little more personal now. So, and I'll start with Jen here. I, I want to know what made you choose to be a nurse practitioner. If you can encapsulate that briefly, Jen, what what was your... Yeah. I 
you know what? I absolutely loved being a nurse at the bedside. Um, I also admit to being a complete nerd and missing school and the challenges that, you know, came along with it. So a coworker of mine actually asked me to just attend an orientation at the University of Maryland. And, you know, I didn't think anything of it. And I went and thought about it briefly. And the application was due about a day and a half later. And um, I sent it in, not really thinking that I was, I was going to get in the first go around. And uh, that actually happened. And, and now here I am. But, um, you know, it was it was the push from just absolutely loving being a nurse and just wanting to grow my career and just push myself a little bit further with within challenges. And I'm I'm super happy I did it. So Jen was the impulse by Katie. What about you? <laughs> Um, I had set the goal for myself. It was something that I always wanted to do, but it almost seemed like it was unreachable. It was hard to imagine myself actually, you know, being a nurse practitioner, a lot of my primary care providers is growing up. Um, I would usually just see the nurse practitioner and I always appreciated how good their bedside manner was with me and how, um, knowledgeable they were. Uh, there was a nurse practitioner in particular when I was working as a nurse at Anne Arundel, Anne Arundel Medical Center in the ER, and she was one of the ICU NPs that would come down, and she just seemed to always look at the chaotic situation and stay really calm and figure out how to fix it. And I thought, like, wow, well, you're pretty, uh, pretty badass to be able to do something like that. So... Uh, I had finished doing a travel rotation um, as a travel nurse and had a little bit of free time and felt like the best thing to do was to just do it now or I'd never do it. So I applied. Um, and at the time, University of South Carolina was one of the uh, higher ranked for at least even just student satisfaction. I did a lot of research on the schools. I also didn't think I was going to get in. And I did. And I wanted to finish before 30. And I did it. Uh, with like a couple months to spare. Wow. Okay. Barb, what about you? Um, so I, I was, I had been a nurse for a pretty long time, um, which it currently is a little different than most new grad NPs. I feel like a lot of, um, new grads really, uh, kind of start with the idea of eventually becoming a nurse practitioner, but I personally had never even worked with a nurse practitioner before. So I was already a nurse for like 14 years, um, had worked in a medical intensive care unit for 10 years. Um, and I started to feel frustrated by my lack of control, uh, or my a lack of ability to really impact the patients the way I, I thought I could in a positive way. Um, and so the, the nurse practitioner role appealed to me because I, I felt like it gave me a lot more, um, autonomy and, uh, and would allow me to, um, to kind of have a greater influence on outcomes of patients. That's, that's how I saw it. I saw it as a, a way to, to have a, a greater influence on, on how well people did. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit now about if it's okay with you guys about the challenges of the workspace and considering the typical listening audience here, this isn't an NP podcast, although there's probably room for that. And you guys, I'm going to advocate as being hosts. Uh, let's talk about the challenges of the workspace and specifically what do physicians, trainees and surgeons do to contribute to the biggest challenges that you guys see each day? What can we do different? Let's start with uh, Katie. Um, 
So in, in particular, I have kind of a limited experience as a nurse practitioner. And I think that our program is pretty unique. Um, since most of our residents are rotating residents and they're from all over the country and they stay a very brief time. And by the time they get the hang of it, they leave on to their next rotation. So I guess some of the biggest challenges is, you know, forming the initial trust with the residents and, and letting them know that we really are here to try to make everything run smoother for the patient and for the attendings. Um, I think the attendings at shock trauma in particular are extremely welcoming to the nurse practitioners. I think we all foster a really good relationship. I think we are a a pretty unique place. Um, I think that the biggest challenge is just having the residents understand our role um, at our particular institution, because there is this, uh, I don't think they use, I don't think they have a nurse practitioner relationship the same way that we do at University of Maryland. So I just think the the ability to work together, but also kind of to be us used as like a, a resource for them because they, they feel as though some of their medical training has already prepared them for some of the stuff they're going to see. So I think using us as like another way to like solve a problem because I feel like we don't always get used that way when it comes to the resident side. But as for the attendings, I'd have to say I have very little complaints with how we function because I think that you guys have a great respect for us and we have a great respect for you guys and it seems to to move pretty swiftly throughout the day. Okay. Barb, uh, is it do you think the trainees are the biggest kind of challenge in terms of dynamic relationships that Katie does or is there, are there other challenges you would like to highlight? Um, I, you know, I would have to say that what, so when I started here about 10 years ago, I think in the hospital, there was maybe 60 advanced practice providers. And now there's well over 300, probably close to 400. So in a 10 year period, we've grown by what 400%. <laughs> and, um, I think that with any huge growth spurt like that, Um, there's growing pains. And my perception of the growing pains that are associated with this role is that there's a lot of people who are unfamiliar with how it functions, sometimes patients more than, you know, doctors and nurses. Um, And so because it grew so quickly, I feel like we didn't have a chance here to, to really hone our, our uh, preparation of the new grad or the new NP or PA, um, either a new employee here or whatever. So I think my greatest challenge is, is really kind of getting everyone on the same level, um, as far as preparedness for taking care of patients. Um, we have so many different roles here in the hospital, depending on the service and depending on, you know, who we work with. Um, and I think in general, the faculty here are incredibly accepting of, of our role. And, um, you know, I've never, I've never had a, I've never had a problem. I've never had a bad time. The residents, you know, they're, they're learning many things, including how to be, become a professional, um, and how to, you know, collaborate with other professionals. And that's just part of the process. And we all went through that too, when we were baby nurses. Um, so I think that the greatest thing right now is just really streamlining and perfecting the process of preparing us the same way that residents get prepared. So they have their, you know, their, their four years, their residency, they have didactic, they have all this education. And, um, and so I, I look forward to um, our 
our institution continuing to improve on that process for the APPs. Yep. Jen, you got anything to add? Uh, I think I, the biggest challenge, you know, I, I see as being an NP is, and this is terrible to say, is, is really sometimes from the patients, just as Barb said. Um, you know, you can walk into a room and say, hi, I'm the nurse practitioner, and they'll immediately stop you and and say they don't want to hear from you. You're, you're just a nurse, and they want to hear from the doctor. And sometimes explaining yourself and, and trying to, you know, get on that level uh, with, with patients can be difficult. I mean, my personal experience, my grandmother has me who is a nurse practitioner and my cousin also is a nurse practitioner. And she still to this day refuses to see a nurse practitioner practitioner because she still wants to see the doctor. Um, <laughs> I think that is, you know, that's, that's one of our biggest challenges. And, you know, from a physician side, just being able to back us up and, and give us that, that, you know, free reign or push to have those conversations with, with patients and families is, is really important to us. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting to me, the dynamics and perspectives and the impact that you guys have on family. I love it when they come back to clinic after you slave for, you know, a 14-hour case, keeping a limb intact or saving their life, and they come back and the person they get hugged to, it's the NP. And they barely remember who I am most of the time, but that some of that's unique to trauma. But uh, I know I value that relationship. So uh, there were some themes here about kind of learning your way and trainees and interacting, and I'm always... Um, really respectful and appreciative of how much you guys do in a teaching capacity because we have, I think, in the modern era, less and less interaction. I have less and less interaction with residents, and they come from all over the country to learn about trauma care at our institution, and you guys really do a lot of, really, I would almost say the lion's share, the nuts and bolts of how trauma care works. What would be your bits, what are the rewards of this teaching role, and what are the the challenges as you, as you ladies see it? And we'll start with, uh, let's mix it up again. We'll start with Katie this time. Um, I, I think going into this role in particular in trauma, I didn't realize um, how much we would be teaching the residents. Um, because, yeah, you're right, the cases are really becoming back-to-back-to-back, and rounds are um, a time to get things done and a time to try and teach, but it's becoming more difficult with the amount of patients that we're seeing and the complexity of the care. So... Um, I have enjoyed teaching the residents uh, when we when we get the chance to, um, even if it's just on our protocols and the way that we do things here, uh, showing them what's typical, um, you know, doing wound care with them, looking over stuff in clinic. You know, there's times where attendings, um, you know, aren't able even to come into clinic, and it's just us and the residents, and they they sign they they work with us and they they have us kind of double check the work and double check everything, and I just. From being a nurse at a uh, at a medical uh, college sort of hospital down in Savannah, the residents were someone that we, as a nurse, you just you kind of say what goes and you rely on them really heavily for the information and validation of the stuff that you're finding. And I didn't realize how much that was going to kind of reverse in this role in particular, um, because we are the continuity of care there, and we have patients that we've been seeing for you know, three months on our census. And there's no way you can understand that in the first 72 hours that you show up at a hospital. It's all the course of everything that happened over the previous three months. So I find it really rewarding and they're extremely grateful and they are, they've always been really, you know, happy to have the help when they're trying to learn as much as they can while they're there. 
Barb, what do you think? Uh, you get quite a few residents that come through the acute care surgery service, and there's a lot of protocolized approaches to things there, and you see pathologies that you just don't see anywhere else. So how do you, what are your rewards and, and challenges of teaching people how to care for uh, young residents in particular, how to care for patients in that environment? Um, <clears throat> I think that, uh, well, one of the rewards straight off the bat is that the residents are hungry for knowledge and they appreciate it. And everything you tell them is, uh, they may not remember it <laughs> the first time they hear it, but um, everything that we we discuss with the residents and the learning goes both ways because learning never stops and, and they always have something to teach me too. But um, it's just very, very um, rewarding to see them come back and say, oh, hey, I did that really complex wound care dressing and I learned it from you. And that, that's always a great thing to hear. Um, as far as the challenges, I would just say I wish I had more time with them. Um, you know, they they scoot in and out in a month and I do teach a couple of classes throughout the year to to kind of get them updated. But residents and new nurses, uh, the same. It just I wish there was more time for education or or more of a ability to to give them a you know a broader um, a broader picture of of what they need to know. Um, yeah. But in general, I love it. I love teaching them, and I, I think I think they love having uh, having the the APPs uh, teach them. Yeah. So I will turn to Jen now, and, and Jen, I'm, I'm going to really frame the question a little bit more closely. So you, you, uh, you know, you guys are the consistent team members, and you probably I have my standard little five or six teaching lectures that I give on rounds every time, and you probably I see you guys roll your eyes and start to fall asleep when I start in on them. But <laughs> the new residents who are there never heard them before. Do you guys find that you end up? Um, kind of leveraging uh, the, almost an attending role in terms of being, uh, you know, teaching the kind of things and the thought processes that we, you guys know us from to use every day for being around us so much. Absolutely. Um, and I, I would never say that we take on the attending role, but, you know, in put a side by side with a fellow, I think we can teach to the, the best of anyone, you know, um, the, residents like Barb and, and Katie both said they're all hungry for knowledge. And if I have the ability to use what you have said in previous rounds and um, what Dr. Morrison and Dr. Henry have said in previous rounds um, to teach those residents, absolutely. I'm going to, I'm going to use that and, and continue with the education. Yeah. I really wish residents took better, uh, you know, care to kind of, it's really low. You guys, in terms of true mentorship and the way I think of mentorship, um, you folks on a day-to-day in the trenches with these residents are such profound mentors and it's stress-free mentorship. You don't directly evaluate the resident. I do. Now, what they don't know, and they should listen to on this podcast is the first person I ask when I'm doing the evals <laughs> is you ladies. Probably did. Uh, so take note of that and all those who are listening. Watch but um, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because the resident's come in trying to prove something, right? They got a month to prove to me that they're awesome. And some of them come here because they want to do trauma and they got to prove it to me, but they don't turn around and take advantage of kind of the mentorship and the things that you ladies can teach them. And, and that is a lost sometimes on some residents, the ones that get it though. I mean, they can really hit it out of the park by building that relationship. Um, Even something as simple as just because our attendings change week to week. If, you know, if they, we, we try to give little hints on how the attendings want things done, 
and even something as simple as that is just, you know, doesn't even have to be directly medical knowledge, but just, you know, this attending is super detail oriented. This one just wants the big picture and to move on and we'll worry about the details later. Those kind of things, I think, make you really successful, you know, tailored to who's training you and who's, and who's going to be judging you at the end of your four weeks there. So that would be something that MPs can provide pretty, uh, it's pretty invaluable. Uh, it's hard to, hard to put a price on that. Yeah, I, I don't want to know which category I am, which kind of business. You probably just tell them, listen, we just got to get through quick rounds with this guy, and then we'll actually take care of the patients. I got it. So let me ask, um, I'm, we're going to move to our section on random questions. And if you guys have listened to the podcast before, I actually typically ask some goofy ones to some of the senior trauma surgeons. ask because I love the answers, and it really gets us, lets us get to know them. Something that I'm fascinated, and I really was looking forward to asking you ladies with regards to NP is, and I have this discussion with my wife is nearing the completion of nurse practitioner training. And um, we've often had some, you know, on the couch discussions about what would be the best part of leaving the bedside and what will be the worst part. So I'm going to put those quickly to each of you. We'll start with Barb. What's the best part about leaving, like being, as my wife sometimes calls it after a long shift, trapped at the bedside? Um, what's going to be the best part of leaving that behind? And what do you miss in that role? Oh, my goodness. Um, Code Browns, uh, uh, the alcoholic patient. Always. Those are my faves. (laughs) Um, So I, I, this is how I feel. I feel like I'm, I'm still at the bedside. I don't know if trapped is the right word, but I do feel like I'm, I'm at the bedside a lot. Um, But now it's with 20 patients instead of two. And I, so the worst part about it is that I don't have the time to give each one the attention I could as a nurse. Like as a nurse, I knew everything about my patient. I knew them from head to toe and I knew their family and I knew their background. And I, I just, I, you know, I knew them like the back of my hand usually. And now I do my best to know all of those things, but I recognize that I just don't have that, that, that same lens that I had as a nurse. Um, so that's the worst part. But it's also the best part because I feel like I'm impacting the care of this large number of patients and I have a lot of autonomy and say in like what, you know, how, how they do and what their outcome is. So I would kind of say the, the good thing and the bad thing about my role is almost the same thing. <laughs> that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. Let's, uh, let's throw it to Katie. Katie, what, what are your thoughts? What do you miss the most and what do you uh, not miss? I'd have to add on um, to, to Barb um, and what she said about just knowing the patient so well and, you know, befriending, you know, taking care of them sometimes weeks at a time. Um, you really do get to know them super well and their family. Um, but I, I'd have to say that I was starting to really feel beat up and run down. A lot of my career was in the emergency department where you don't get a super intimate you know, one-on-one care with patients. Usually you're taking care of up to seven to to 10. I mean, those days you just felt like you were barely keeping your head above water and you felt like you got hit by a truck by the time you got home. And I really just felt like my body and my patients had run so thin and I I don't miss that feeling. Um, That's something that I was really ready to walk away from. And I think your wife can, can attest to that sometimes too. I'm sure when she gets home, she looks like the wind has been knocked out of her. Um, I don't really have that terrible feeling like I used to. And I also like, 
the, the best part I think of leaving the bedside for me was getting able to really talk about like the pathophysiology and the decision-making and watching things like change on a bigger picture. I was kind of getting tired. I was getting, I was actually really getting tired of just feeling like I was completing some tasks and not really getting able, not really learning why exactly I'm doing it this way and what the long-term um, goals were going to be for this patient. Cause you just wanted to get through your 12 hours. And now I feel like I, I get to discuss things with you as the attendings. I feel, you know, valued. I feel like my opinions valued. Um, I, I think that's been the best part of leaving the bedside is being part of like the diagnostic process and, and helping these patients, you know, ultimately get out of the hospital and come back to clinic and look like a completely different person. I, you just don't get that as a nurse. You don't get to see them in the clinic after they've, you know, their first few steps. I have families that have sent me videos of their, you know, their loved ones taking their first few steps after being bed bound for six months. That just didn't really get to happen for me much, especially as an ER nurse, because you just don't get to see the, the end result. So I think that's been some of the, the most rewarding things of leaving the bedside, the way that I was a bedside nurse. Okay. Jen, what would you add? Uh, for me, the, <laughs> the best part about leaving bedside was like literally the heavy lifting and just getting beat up by patients, both, you know, physically, emotionally, and mentally. I mean, you spend three days a week, 12 hours a day with, you know, some patients that can just wear you down. And, um, you know, as a nurse practitioner, I have the ability to still be in contact with those patients, but you know, I get to walk away and being a bedside nurse for some particular patients can be very difficult. And I, I think that is one of the benefits of leaving bedside. Granted, I also love taking care of some patients and I do miss the intimacy and, and the relationships you build with others. Um, I think the thing that I miss most is, you know, the coworkers. I mean, you, and I have great relationships obviously now with my coworkers, but, uh, uh -huh. <laughs> but as, you know, as bedside, you go through some really difficult days together and, and you get through those days because of those people and, and just, you build awesome relationships. And I still have, you know, I think about literally, oh my gosh, Dr. DuBose, there is one moment I think about with Leah all the time. And if you just ask her about everybody up, she'll probably know exactly what you're talking about. And it's, it's those moments that I completely miss. And yeah. Yeah. It's, it reminds me a lot of being deployed. I mean, I've got little stories of being deployed and stuck in a foxhole with a certain people and little phrases like that. You can say, I don't even know what everybody up means, but um, we've got our own little things and everybody starts laughing because they, they can go back to that time. Yeah. Um, now, it's interesting. Now, you guys were all former nurses, right? Um, seasoned nurses. When we did a podcast with some of the trauma nurses, uh, I asked them the question that, you know, about when, when, when the nurse crosses over to the advanced practitioner, are they one of you or are they one of them? Right. Meaning one of the doctors. Right. And their perception was that you become maybe not immediately, but over time you become one of them, you know, the enemy, so to speak. What's your perception on the NP side and how do you, you know, walk that fine line of remembering what it was like to be the nurse, but now moving in this to this advanced role? How does that interaction with nurses change? Yeah, I'll start with that. Okay. Um, I honestly, that kind of makes me sad hearing that. Um, I think if you were to go back and ask the majority of, of nursing who they'd rather ask a question to in the physician group, also the NPs, I think they would say the NP group because we're familiar, we're comfortable. We don't make them feel dumb at times. Um, so I think we're absolutely a bridge in that, 
in that terms. And I also will never pass down an opportunity. If somebody needs a bedpan, of course, I'll get you a bedpan. If you need some water, I'll go get it. Um, and I hope to not lose that over time. And you know, that it does make me a little, a little sad, the one of them versus one of us. Cause I, I still think I'm, you know, I say it all the time. I'm a nurse and I love being a nurse. Well, you know, I think some of it has to do with, you're not just super nurses anymore. You're, you're, you are an entirely different specialty with entirely different concerns. And I think, uh, it's just perspective to some degree, uh, Barb, what's your, what are your thoughts? What are, are you one of them or one of us? I guess when I'm saying us, I mean, the doctor side of the house. Um, I, I feel like I should, I could echo exactly what, what Jen said. And I, I, I feel like the culture here, <clears throat> I think in general, um, and I'm kind of all over the hospital besides trauma. I'm also everywhere else. And I feel like I've always had a pretty good response to, uh, or reaction with nursing, um, and a pretty good collaborative relationship. Um, and I hope that, moving forward, it's not an us and a them thing, because I feel like that also is, is a culture issue. Um, and that we should all sort of feel like we're partners in the patient care. Um, I know that the residents, they have their own level of stress and they have their own kind of barriers. And then the same is true for nursing, especially in, you know, um, like you guys mentioned, those patients that just suck the life out of you. And, and that's true for everybody. We've all had that kind of experience, regardless of what level we're at. Um, but I feel like approaching it like partners um, is kind of the easiest way to 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 kind of make the best situation for the patient and for ourselves. Um, so I, I think I, I agree. And, and I also think that um, uh, a lot of the nurses that that we work with are thinking about becoming NPs themselves. That's so true. I, I hope that they, I hope that they have a positive impression of us. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think some of it was tongue in cheek. It's not that they view a negative thing, but, and shock trauma is an interesting culture, but all hospitals is, are to some degree, you know, the, the trauma docs think the ER docs are knuckleheads sometimes or talk like they do. And the ER nurses think the ICU nurses are just slow rolling them. So they don't want to work, you know, taking this patient up from the ER. There's all these little subtle nuances of stereotypes that, are not really true. We're all part of the same team. And I think they all recognize that too. Yep, but let me, yep. Katie, let me spin this question a little bit for our final question here. And I want to ask all of you, when you're interacting with nurses, and we all have our tricks and our specialties. And nurses, I know full well, without disclosing any of the, I was raised by, my mother was a nurse. Uh, I have been, I'm married to a nurse. Uh, I know all the little tricks and I spent years in two fellowship trainings. I know the tricks when a nurse is trying to get you with the hammer calls on the pager or uh, those kind of things. What, and I don't want to build into stereotypes too much here because those are not real fair, but as an NP now, what little nursing things do you see that you used to probably do as a nurse, but now frustrate you? Uh, so it's kind of interesting, um, not to go into too much backstory, but we've kind of had to, with in the time of uh, COVID, have had to shift our responsibilities on trauma teams, and we are the only people currently managing um, the floor patients. So we have been interacting with nurses um, more than we ever have in the last two months. So it's I've kind of it's a good time to ask that question. Um, I think the uh, the thing that I 
I worked night shift a lot towards the end. And the goal of night shift was to bother as least amount of people as possible. And everyone kind of picked who was a short straw, who was going to have to page that doc to wake them up, who was going to have to call that resident who, you know, is getting, you know, hammered down in the ER to come upstairs and look at somebody because we only had a couple residents over at night. So I think the things that I'm noticing now is there are levels of emergency and urgency, and there are things that can wait a little bit um, or things that I wish that nurses would be confident in themselves because so many of them are so strong and they, they usually know the answer before they page you, right? They usually know what the kind of the next step is. So I, I wish that there was some kind of a minute of pause of like, you know what, maybe I could kind of figure this out myself and I don't need um, the, the second, you know, page or the third page. Cause I, I am, you know, I have the knowledge, I know what needs to happen next. And, and it can be a little bit more of like an educational, uh, conversation instead of, you know, this, these few, like, you know, slightly abnormal vitals, slightly abnormal this, that I feel like maybe I did as a nurse and I, and I, and I, now that I have more knowledge as a, as more of a diagnostic and prescribing and plan of care management that we do now. And maybe I forget that I didn't know that as well as I did, you know, a couple of years ago as a bedside nurse, but I just, I just wish that, that there were times where nurses use the knowledge that they do have because so many of them are so strong in particular at, at trauma and at university of Maryland in general, that they would take the minute to, to use their own knowledge that they have and try to problem solve a little bit before, um, you know, getting on the phone and texting with this, you know, nonstop doc halo that we have. Yeah. I love me some doc halo. Yeah. Uh, Barb, you were in the ICU for a long time. What tricks have you had thrown at you that you're like, come on, you're not good. I invented that trick. You're not bringing that out on me. Um, hmm. That is a good question. I don't know if I would want to take credit for necessarily inventing this particular trick, but I know the drill when it comes to pretending that you haven't discharged your patient so that you don't have to take an admission before change of shift. There um, it is. Yep. <laughs> So I know I know all the delay tactics, although I would never take credit for for um, necessarily utilizing them, but I'm familiar with them. So I think that's one one thing that um, a lot of times the residents will say, oh, the, the patient can't take the the patient can't move from the PACU because there's no bed. And I'll say, what? There is a bed. And, <laughs> and you know, kind of facilitate it. All right. Well, so Jen, what? Uh, your last. You get the last bite here. What is it? The plane attendings off of residents, or um, what tricks do you see that uh, you're like, oh, come on, that's an old nursing trick. I know that one. Yeah. Um, I yeah. I gotta say, I think my go-to is you know the mom versus dad thing. Um, oh yeah. So, <laughs> you know, the child of divorced parents. <laughs> You don't get the right answer from one person. You're gonna you're gonna go to the next and, and see what you can get. And uh, you know, oftentimes, I, I was an ICU nurse, and I I thought I knew best. And so, you know, if I didn't like one answer, damn straight, I would go to the next. So, have you guys had that played off of you? I mean, I'm sure you have, right? They didn't like your answer, so they went to the attending or something. Yep. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
back when back when we had Flordock, um, this role where the the person is the uh, sacrificial lamb of getting all pages and text from all of nursing from the whole tower. If uh-huh. if they didn't like the resident's answer, we shortly got paged right after because they wanted to see what kind of answer they get out of us next. But now it's just us. So uh, yeah, I guess I'll I'll start money. looking for my Balcalo to start lighting yeah, up. They're coming. They're they're coming for you. Yeah. Well, ladies, listen, this has been a joy and I think very useful for the for folks who are going to be listening to this. Um, as always, I will uh, profess to for another 20 minutes, if you want, my appreciation of everything that you ladies do to uh, and all the NPs and PAs out there as we move forward in healthcare and just continue to evolve as a team. Uh, you folks play a key part and I would encourage all the residents and trainees listening to, you know, learn to partner with these folks. They are your greatest source of knowledge, uh, not just about clinical stuff, but also about how things work and the dynamics of the institution that you're stepping into or the new service you're coming on. So buy them a cup of coffee, pick their brain, and you will reap massive dividends. Um, As always, this has been another episode of the Trauma Podcast. You're, feel free to consume our podcast anywhere that you can find podcasting materials for consumption. And if you have any recommendations for additional podcast materials, people to talk to, or comments or questions about our existing podcast, be sure to email us at thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. Uh-huh.